Hey, and welcome to another episode of High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. Now, as you know, on this show, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is seeing how we can actually pull out a lot of institutional knowledge from our current baby boomer CEOs. Uh, as a millennial advisor, it's really important to me that I'm able to talk with and get to know some really interesting characters. And those happen to be the leaders of companies that we all know and love, and some of them that you might not know about. Well, today, I'm very excited to tell you about a gentleman, and you get a chance to sit down and hear my conversation with somebody who has not only helped buy and sell companies, throughout his career. He's done it 19 times and counting. Um, you might have heard of a little company called Paycom back in 2014 that went public. Yeah, he was also a part of that too. He's also gonna tell you about a new company that he has started that is number one, and as he told me, is the Ritz Carlton of HR software. We're gonna get into all of that and more, and you're gonna learn even more tips and tricks early in your career or whether you're an executive on how to be able to continue to build out culture. He's done a lot in his time and I'm so thankful to have him on our show. I want to welcome today for all of you to listen to my interview with Gary Trainer, the CEO of Viventium. Hey Gary and welcome to the show. Thank you very much Chris. It's listen, an honor to be here. Absolutely and I'm really excited to talk to you today because um, after we had an opportunity to talk and I learned a little bit more about uh, not only what you've done over your career, mm -hmm. but um, your thinking and the way you go about what you've done. Mm -hmm. um, let's just kind of start at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, 19 acquisitions ago. Cool. <laughs> right. It's a long time. Um, but a lot I, of deals. I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious to understand what was the moment? Where were you working? What was happening when you were just an individual contributor? Mm -hmm. Take us back to really understanding that space and time mm -hmm. and how you went from that to saying, I want to go into leadership to I'm the head of the first company mm -hmm. and I need to pull my hair out now because mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, I actually, my first job was at a small company in New Jersey called Jacobs and Manufacturing and I started as a corporate accountant. So I was a sole contributor, but, um, you know, I, I had a very strong leadership role model in my father who um, grew up in a business where he started in high school as a sweeper and he eventually became the president of the company. Hmm. So literally from the bottom to the top. So I think it was wired into me that that's what I should do. And I, I admired my father greatly. Right. So I knew that I wanted to get into leadership as quickly as I could. Uh, and I got that opportunity actually at ADP. And I, when I joined and was in, stayed in accounting in, initially and was in supervisory role. So that was the start of it. Wow. is to be, in, to be in supervision. But I really still had the aspiration to go as far as my skills uh, would take me. So 19 deals later, mm -hmm. you've gotten an opportunity to really uh, see companies go through cultural changes. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of those had a lot to do with merging acquisitions right. or just buying and selling and mm -hmm. creating something new within that process. Mm -hmm. What would you say has been kind of the biggest um, consistent thing that you've noticed no matter what the acquisition right. was, no matter what the deal was, no matter who the company was, mm -hmm. what are some of those consistent themes that you saw as you've worked with these companies? I, I think the first thing is you've got to take care of the people issues before you get onto the strategic issues. You mm -hmm. may have a really compelling vision of how putting these two companies together is going to be remarkable. You have to um, make the people feel comfortable uh, with very open and honest and clear dialogue or you can't get to the strategy because you get bogged down in kind of a cultural clash. And mm -hmm. early on, I, you know, I made mistakes and fortunately I was able to learn from them. 
And so, you know, I took those on to the other acquisitions in terms of addressing the people issues first. Absolutely. So um, I want to get into kind of how you go about being a CEO okay. in your in your everyday. What are some of those um, things that you have learned in some of the failures that you mm -hmm. had as a CEO mm -hmm. that have helped you become a better leader in the next opportunity and the next situation or the next crisis even. Okay. Well, I think some of the things I've learned along the way is that you, you may have a great compelling vision and a strategy on how to get there, but if you don't bring the people along in their hearts and minds and want to go over the wall with you, uh, you're going to over that wall yourself and the company is not going to achieve what you want to achieve and you're going to be disappointed with the results and you're going to be disappointed with the timeline. So you have to go back and make sure that people are buying into what it is you're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. And you have to really win their hearts and minds. You have to such that they want to be part of this mission. And I always call it a journey because business is a journey. It's mm -hmm. not like we're just going from point A to point B. No, we, we're going actually towards our North Star, which I always try to get people focused on the North Star, which is that is the end point of what we're trying to get to. And you can never get to the North Star and maybe you'll never get to your ultimate vision. Yeah. But if you're in pursuit of it, the journey is what, what it's, where the value is created. Interesting. So let's talk about one specific journey. Okay. Um, is there a moment, is there a company that you kind of walked in with that might have been the most difficult journey um, that you were walking through, but it taught you the most about how to truly be able to mm -hmm. bring together camaraderie, moving the company forward and bringing people along with you so that you can continue that vision. Sure. I think the toughest thing was bringing together two mortal enemies, mm. um, companies that were fierce competitors with each other and um, didn't compete on the same ground, grounds. And so therefore we had a go-to-market difference, we had a philosophical difference, we had a cultural difference, we had a skill level difference. Um, so to win those people over was the hardest thing I think that I've had to do. Hmm. And you know, one of the things I try to do uh, in an acquisition is first create a, a clear vision of the culture that we want to create. And then what I try to do is evaluate all the people and, and uh, get people interested and fired up about being part of that new culture. And then I think of the world kind of as a two by two matrix. So there's low performers and high performers, there's old culture and new culture. Mm -hmm. And what you want is you want everybody to be a high performer in the new culture. Mm -hmm. And that's ideal. But when you come in in the beginning, they're not there because right. they may not even understand or embrace the new culture. Right. And then as you start to roll that out, then you start to evaluate uh, people who are you know, low performers who are mired in the, in the old culture and don't want to change at all. Those are the most difficult, but sometimes they're the easiest situations to address. Um, the, the ones that are, the things that are most exciting for me are people who oh, embrace the new culture, but are low performers. Mm -hmm. Because if you can bring them forward and be high performers in this future world, they're, they are so fired up that they will, they, they will latch onto the cause. The toughest are the people who are the high performers who are mired in the old culture. Okay. They don't see a reason to change. Right. They don't want to change. They're the ones at the water cooler who are saying, uh, you know, we shouldn't change. These, right. these new management people, they'll go away. <laughs> right. Let's just, you know, keep doing what we're doing. Right. And that's the toughest one because they don't buy what you're trying to create. So, Gary, talk to me about a little further what it's like to go through a merger and acquisition mm -hmm. where you've got two separate cultures. Mm -hmm. You know that one is being swallowed kind of by mm -hmm. the other. Mm -hmm. But culturally, what is happening there? Are, are you are you asking one 
to join the other? Mm -hmm. Are you are you vice versa? Mm -hmm. Is there a you know what? Talk to us about what that sure. looks like because one of the things that I have noticed is that, um, and this is something I've I've been studying for quite a while now. As psychological safety kicks mm -hmm. in, anytime we're faced with change, uh, if an employee is faced with, well, our company just got bought, the first thing they're thinking about is is what's going to happen to me? Mm -hmm. What's happening to my job? Right. And it's very hard to be a Gary who's got to stand mm -hmm. up there and right. say, hey, welcome to Company mm -hmm. X, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> you know, and be able to share a message when mm -hmm. you know that kind of their psychological safety is saying, well, you haven't really mm -hmm. told me what I'm listening right. for. What's that like and what kind of things have you done in those okay. situations? Well, I'll, I'll go back to maybe one of my early mistakes, which is I was bringing two companies together and we were the acquiring company in every case, um, we did one divestiture on, in, in addition. But what we believed going in, and certainly what I believed is, you know, we had the superior culture. We sure. were the higher performer, <laughs> we're the acquiring company. And so we are now going to teach all of you people, the acquired company, how to think and behave and be like us. Right. Just adopt our culture. All right. And what I learned very quickly, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And nor do you take on their culture, even if you're buying a tremendous asset that you really think is going to you know, jettison your company to mm -hmm. the future. What I've observed happens is when you take two cultures together, you actually create a third culture. Mm. And that third, that is the process of acculturation okay. where this third culture forms. Now you should try to take some ownership of that and try to steer it and guide it. But to think you're going to have one or the other, um, I think it is kind of false. It doesn't happen. Interesting. But, so mm -hmm. then how do you address the psychological safety that people sure. are feeling when, okay. when those things are happening? Well, what I've learned is that until you address a very few things, in a, when you come, I'm always the guy who comes in and has to explain, you know, we just acquired you. Here's how great life is going to be. <laughs> well, until you get past a few things, they're not going to listen to how great this future mm -hmm. is going to be and what's the strategic rationale and the industrial logic to bring these two companies together. Mm -hmm. So I have found you've, you've got to make them feel comfortable that they have the same job and the same pay and they work for the same manager with the same benefits. Until they're comfortable with that, they're not even listening That's to right. the rest of your story. So that is what I address right up front. And then during that conversation, uh, one thing I, I talk about, which I also talk about when I, when I hire new people, and I probably, I've hired many thousands of people in my career, is that people say, you know, how do you know, how do you keep your job in this mm -hmm. new environment? And so I say it really comes down to three things. One, become an expert at what you're, what you're in charge of. Really become domain, study it, sharpen your saw, keep learning, find mentors who are experts at what you do. Really become knowledge-wise, you know, uh, just incredibly valuable. The second is to become a high performer, which means the quality of your work is outstanding, your results are outstanding, uh, you really focus on being a top performer. That's part of your goal. And the third is be a nice person. Um, and then, you know, be somebody that's likable, that people want to work with. They want you on their team. You want to be on their team. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to those three things. And I have said to people, and I've kept my word on this, that anybody who is an expert and is a high performer and is likable and then adopts the company's new new culture if they're living the culture. Mm -hmm. If it's a false promise, it, it, all bets are off. Yeah. But if it's got high integrity and it's got congruity and they live it, those people are valuable such that I've never uh, – a person who has done those three things has never lost their job in all my time. And I tell new hires the same thing. Hmm. Do those three things and it will guarantee your success. And many times when you put two companies together, positions get eliminated. Right. But anybody who's done those three things gets a new job in the company. Interesting. So um, let's let's shift gears here. And mm -hmm. I, I want to get your thoughts on 
the millennial and baby boomer phenomenon mm-hmm. that's happening in the workplace today. So I'll start here. You came up at a time where there was such a a foundational shift in the workplace in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. Um, not just in a sense of long working hours, but the foundational pieces that we all kind of stand on now, that's what you were a part of. Mm-hmm. You were a part of the IBMs of the world mm-hmm. growing up and all these larger companies right. that kind of became larger than the planet, really. Mm-hmm. Right. What was it like being 25 to mm-hmm. 30 at that time mm-hmm. and now being a leader in these companies right. and you're hiring this new person that is a millennial who has mm-hmm. a ton of different skill sets and ideas. What? Mm-hmm. Tell mm-hmm. us about that journey okay. from going okay. from when you were there sure. to what you're hiring now. Okay, that's, that's a great question. So I, I think when I graduated from college and started my career, I think most people thought the way I thought, which was to get into a big company and climb the corporate ladder as fast as you could. Right. And everybody wanted to be CEO someday. It seemed that way anyway. <laughs> right. And so the competition <laughs> at every level was was fierce. Right. Um, and so, and by the way, from the bottom to the top, might have had 10 layers mm-hmm. that you had to navigate your way through and continue to right. excel and perform and everything else. Companies have delayered quite a bit. Um, and I think millennials have actually a better perspective than we did because we were, it was literally a rat race. Mm-hmm. It's much more today about you know, the, the meaning of the firm, the values that you create. Are you, are you creating the, the, the why your company even exists? Mm-hmm. As an example, our company, we exist because we believe that remarkable experiences are possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like Apple says, we, we think out of the box. We right. try to do extraordinary things. Well, we actually go bring it down to the personal level. So we focus all day long on giving our clients and our employees and coworkers a remarkable experience. We're extremely committed to that. So for millennials today, I think they've got a better balance of performance and value where we were all about performance. Right. And so, you know, I kind of admire that. And we're actually building our company for millennials. So, you know, they say that by 2020, 50% of the workforce will be millennial. Well, we're already in 2017 at 55%. Mm-hmm. And then they're saying by 2025, it's going to be 75%. Right. We'll probably be beyond that at that point too. Absolutely. So we're designing our software for millennials and we're, because they are the age group they're in, they're the, the oldest ones are already decision makers and are moving into the decision-making ranks. In the next few years, they're gonna move into senior ranks and the others will be coming along and they'll become decision-makers. So we want them to think favorably about our software and that we've designed it for them. Absolutely, and I wanna, a little later, I wanna, I wanna dive into your company because there was some things that I noticed even from your website mm-hmm. that I thought was, uh, speaks well of your culture mm-hmm. and, and, and I'll, I'll have some questions around that. But I, I think one of the things that I find interesting about what you just said is that, um, the advantages that you see millennials mm-hmm. have today. Where do you see some of the misconceptions mm-hmm. being today of being a baby boomer right. CEO that might be sitting out there that uh, you might be able to speak to, mm-hmm. um, to to folks who think certain ways about a baby boomer CEO who's sitting at the top spot of most sure. companies? Well, I think one thing I kind of touched on it is from when I was starting out, everybody believed they could get to the top and, you, and you, there was a way, there was a path to get there. And you just had to have more and more responsibility. You had to have large organizations. You had to work your way up this mm-hmm. up this vertical, you know, uh, ladder situation. And now it's much more about your contribution to the firm. Right. Are you making a difference? Are you aligned with the values of the company? You know, do you bring passion to work? 
uh, does that passion find its way into its pro into pro when I was growing we didn't talk that way we didn't talk about the passion of the product. We didn't talk about the design of the product, the design of the experience. There was no concept called user experience and user interface. And now there's the, these things do exist where people can become superior at, at those things. So it's not so much about how fast do I get to the top. Right. It's much more about you know con contributing to something meaningful and am I gathering skills and experiences along the way. Right. So And when I interview people, what I look for is I have a very simple model, is what experiences have they had? From those experiences, they developed what skills? And from those skills, they created what? Mm. Um, and, and it's a very simple thing. So I look for, I'm not looking for people who just presided in the job, mm -hmm. but gained phenomenal skills along the way. And then, and that's like step two, but then if they did that and they turned it into something fantastic, that, that's, that's the kind of rock star we're looking for. Interesting. So... Um... <laughs> I've I've been studying something and I want to get your your thoughts on this. Lately, there's mm -hmm. a lot of conversation in the HR space mm -hmm. um, around what people call the frozen middle. Mm -hmm. Right, it's that layer of management that over the last 15, 20 years, mm -hmm. a lot of companies are not really sure what to do with. Right, because as you mentioned, companies have kind of mm -hmm. flattened so right. much. Why do you think there's so much of a change there? And what should we do, in your opinion, with that middle layer mm -hmm. of, of companies today? Okay. Well, you know, traditionally, the middle management was a command and control position. Mm -hmm. And it was about resource allocation mm -hmm. and getting the work done. And it was more, and I think today, it's much more about identifying and nurturing and developing high performers to unleash them. It isn't because there's... Uh, availability of information is enormous. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows everything. And so, you know, in the old days, it was if you were a manager, you could be, in if you could be in charge of some secret stuff, you know, you could kind of protect your little fiefdom. That's no, that's no longer true. Right. Nobody, <laughs> nobody's got secret stuff anymore. Right. And so it's much more about, um, you know, are you aligned? Are you an achiever? Do you want to help the company on their journey um, versus, you know, uh, what's in it for me? Yeah. So, you know, it's a con it's more of a combination now because back then, no, you didn't think about what's in this for me. You were there to contribute That's right. and climb. And now it's much more about, I want this to mean something to me. Yeah. And I want to contribute back to you. So I think there's much greater balance today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.